Tonight, the battle over boosters just hours before American a critical FDA advisory Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigginoth. I knew I was going to mess this word up. Shigginoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and the plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Okay. Well, good morning again. Glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, Andrew, uh, who would normally be up there, up here, went up to the men's retreat and uh, just wanted to uh, be able to stay there and be part of the whole thing. Uh, so he asked me to fill in for him this morning. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. <clears throat> uh, I was also glad to be able to teach from this portion of Scripture in Habakkuk, because if you remember, uh, the last time I, I got to uh, come and teach in the main sanctuary was uh, during chapter 1 of Habakkuk, uh, which was my, my, the topic that Andrew asked me to cover then was the, the problem of evil and suffering. And... Uh, and I was very intimidated by that, that passage of Scripture because um, nobody likes to look at evil and suffering for, for very long. Um, and it was, it was difficult. It was a, um, a hard thing to, to think through and process some of the, the pain and sufferings, even in my own life, um, as, as it came out in that message. And so uh, when he told me what the passage was and I, I went and I read it, I was like, oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> this is so much happier. <laughs> like it's just a kind of a lighter feel than than the the last one. Um, but at the same time, chapter three doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, in order to understand the kind of the, the difference of tone that we see here uh, in in Habakkuk's response to what God has said, we really do need to know what uh, where he started and kind of see what uh, the whole process of how Habakkuk came to this point. Um, and there is a, a quite a drastic change of perspective. So um, it is a happy one, uh, but I'd like to actually turn backwards. So if you will, turn backwards with me uh, to Habakkuk 1, just to review a bit of how the prophet gets here and to see for yourself how far along he's come. So back in chapter 1, briefly, we, we see Habakkuk's initial complaint to God, uh, and we'll begin reading... In verse 2, it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, 
and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And if we stop there, we see his complaint is actually about the people of Judah. These are God's people. Um, and he's upset because they've they're been called to worship the Lord and, and represent him well to all the nations. And they are not doing that at this time. Habakkuk is mad um, at them and maybe even uh, mad at God for allowing it. He's looking for some answers. It's as if he's saying, what's the deal, God? What are you doing up there in heaven? Bring some justice. He says, don't sit idly by. You could, you could also translate that as lazily. Don't sit lazily by while these things are happening. Get up off your throne and come do something about this. That's the attitude we see here. Well, God answers by telling Habakkuk what he's about to do. And it's in the form of using the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Uh, that God is going to wield them like a weapon, just like he did with the Assyrians uh, against the nation of Israel. He's now going to use the Babylonians against the people Judah. And Habakkuk does not like that news one bit. And he voices his second complaint, beginning in verse 12. So read that with me. Uh, Habakkuk 1.12 says, Are you not from everlasting... O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Basically, and this is the passage that I got to teach on uh, several weeks back. Basically, the cure is worse than the disease. How could you use an even more wicked nation, Babylon, to punish the slightly less wicked nation of Judah? If anyone should be wiped off the map, it's the Babylonians. And he ends his complaint asking the question in verse 17, after he's depicted the war machine of the Chaldeans as, as fishermen who just use their nets to just drag nations up and, and destroy them. Uh, this is what he says in, in verse 17. He says, Is he then, Babylon, to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Are you going to allow this to happen for forever, God? It's a question many of us wrestle with. How long will you let this go on? Will you come and bring justice? If so, when? And so far we've got Habakkuk questioning God, even providing God with a little bit of counsel. Like, could you imagine that? Like He's like, you know, I, I kind of think that uh, I might do it different. <laughs> like, I don't think you should use the Babylonians. I, I, maybe do something a little different. Um, if I were you, I'd, I'd be doing it this way. But you should definitely do something. Get off your throne and lay down some fire and brimstone on these nations. Just make sure that the fire is hotter on the Babylonians than it is for Judah, right? And then he finishes his complaints. Um, he finishes his, his frustrations. But he, he does so in seeking God. 
And, and this, is, this he does very well. He, he asks the questions to God. He voices his frustrations to God. And then he waits to hear an answer from God. Habakkuk is God's prophet. And God speaks to him and through him deep things. He's not turning anywhere else for the answers. He just doesn't like the answers that he's getting from God. But this is what he says uh, to kind of end his, his time and his, his voicing of frustrations uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so he waits to hear from the Lord. And then, yes, God speaks. And in the last couple of weeks we, of, of our studies, we've seen how um, God declares things against the Chaldeans, a series of woes um, that could easily be said of just about any powerful, violent nation throughout history. And yes, um, there are practical applications to us as individuals, which Andrew and, and Lucas made very clear the last few weeks. But something you need to notice in light of the entire story, in light of the entire book of Habakkuk, is this, that God does not answer the questions of Habakkuk in the ways that he was probably hoping to receive. He doesn't answer Habakkuk's questions the way Habakkuk wanted him to. God doesn't say, you're right, Habakkuk, what was I thinking? I shouldn't use those guys you know, I'll just use an earthquake or something, and I, I won't kill or injure any of my people, um, maybe just destroy their buildings, and maybe some of them will lose their jobs, something a little less drastic to get my point across. No. God doesn't change the decree. The problem is still there. The hardship is still coming. And he's still going to use these people to bring about judgment on his own people. And Habakkuk might in his lifetime have had to witness the horrors of that. But God does speak to Habakkuk. And what he tells him, he speaks of his own character, of his anger at sin, and the repercussions of the evil that this people has brought. There's going to be judgment for sin. It's coming. First on Judah, and then on the Chaldeans also, just as there's judgment coming for every man, woman, and child who is born into rebellion against the perfect creator, God of the universe. So he says in Habakkuk 2.3, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So right there, God's telling his prophet to wait for it. It might seem slow, but it's still coming. And after that announcement, God makes this statement that the Apostle Paul and the author of Hebrews, they jump all over this um, in verse 4, contrasting the attitude of one who rejects God's judgments and the attitude of one who waits on the Lord. One who's puffed up and proud and not upright in soul is contrasted with the righteous person who shall live by faith. And we'll come back to this in a minute as we look at uh, Habakkuk's response from all of this. But read it while we're here. Um, verse 4 of Habakkuk 2, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. 
one of the theme verses um, that we, we hear quoted so often from this book. God gives then this series of woes to the Chaldeans or to anyone who fits the descriptions uh, listed here, which, if we're honest, way too much of the time uh, it describes ourselves. And I almost wonder if Habakkuk was listening to this woe to the Chaldeans and recognizing how much of it sounded just like Habakkuk's initial complaint against the people of Judah, his own people. These woes are aimed at a nation, uh, but they can certainly be applied to the individual, especially the last one um, that we studied, uh, speaking about idolatry. It was a convicting message. Or we worship these speechless, silent things or ideas. Things made from man with no real power to them, certainly no power to save, and yet we scream our praises to these idols. God ends his rightful rant against the Chaldeans by pointing out the real response that we should be having, which is in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And I don't know if that was a gentle nudge at his own prophet. Like, you keep questioning me. Because things are about to get real bad. And I told you things are going to get real bad. But you're mad at me about it. All the while, my people are down here worshiping idols. Maybe you should all stop your questioning. Definitely stop your worship of idols. And just come sit at my feet. Come back to my temple. Sit in silence before me. And I'm probably stretching that because the exact opposite is what the prophet now does. He composes a prayer song. And it's beautiful. I, I wish I could have heard it sung by the, the choir master's worship team in the language, the original language, and like know um, what was being said and all of that. Uh, but it's beautiful because in, in light of all that's transpired in chapters 1 and 2, we see this radical shift in position and heart of the prophet. And so in verse 1, please don't get hung up on the word shigionoth, uh, or however you want to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> Because I, I don't know how to pronounce it, and nobody does. And, and it's because it's, it's a transliteration. It's, it's not even a trans... It's, it's, it's them taking the, uh, the original letters and just putting them as close as they can to our letters because we don't know what that word means. Um, it appears there's a very similar um, word to it in Psalm 7, another example. Um, it's probably, most likely, uh, it's a musical notation. It's, it's something to alert... Uh, the people, how that song was to be played. Um, some people think maybe it was to be played with more of a, a strong, rapid, and kind of like chaotic beat to it because of the, um, the content. But we don't know. It's all guesswork. So please, in your home group and small group times, do not try to figure out the mystery of Shigianoth. That is not what this is about. Okay. Verse 2 is where we start to get to the point. And really, he makes... Uh, Several important points here. Let's read it together. Verse 2 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, this sounds very familiar to Job's response 
when he has this conversation with God. Uh, at the very end of the book of Job, God speaks and declares things about himself, doesn't answer some of Job's questions, just declares who he is. And at the end of that, um, well, both Job and Habakkuk, they're not novices in knowledge of God. They are not novices in the worship of God. And yet this is the response of Job um, after hearing God speak and declare who he is. Uh, both Job and Habakkuk's minds and hearts have been altered to saying something similar. For Job, it was uh, chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, where he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, Habakkuk has heard of God and his mighty works, but now he has this depth of relationship with God that's going to go far beyond just the stories. He's encountered God. He's made complaints to God. And when God mercifully answers Habakkuk, he describes what he's about to do and his attitude towards the injustices that Habakkuk originally was upset with. It's, it's worthy, I think it's worthy of our time to now view the prophet's response to all of this. And it's one of fear. He says, I'm scared of this. And we get freaked out at that word in our culture, um, in, our, in our Christian culture. But fear is a proper response to standing before the all-powerful God. God's ways are not our ways. He can and will do things that would terrify us. But our fear is not necessarily one that should send us screaming and cowering away from this all-powerful God. In fact, the fear should have the opposite response, that it sends us running to him to find shelter in his arms. And as scared as Habakkuk is of what God just said he's about to do, that he was about to punish Judah and Babylon, it seems as if Habakkuk has come to some form of acceptance in this moment. Yet he still seems to want to give a little counsel to God here. It's like, just, I don't know what it is about it. He's like, I just, I'm going to get my little word in here. This is what I think should, you should do. And so, uh, if you like taking notes and you like it when things all line up very nicely, all of these words begin with the letter R. So you're welcome, note takers. Okay? Um, but we see here that the first one being the word revive. He's saying that work that I'm scared of, revive it. Revive your plan. You know what's best, God. It's as if he's saying, your will be done. Your kingdom come. Not my will, but yours. I'm scared of this plan, God. I don't like this plan, God but I'm trusting you now with your plan. Revive it. No more questions. You do it your way. That's quite the change from his initial statements of how long, God, will I cry out and you do nothing? Here he's saying, okay, I, I hear your plan. I'm scared of that plan. Revive that plan. The second R word here is reveal to reveal your plans. He asks that God would make this known. Don't hide these things in the coming years, but make it known. Make known your intentions. And perhaps then, 
by making this known to your people, perhaps then some of them will repent from their sinful ways and turn back to you. Not necessarily change the, the wrath that's coming to fix the problem, but make this known to your people and perhaps some will turn. So reveal this thing. Reveal it to your people. And finally, he asks God to remember. To remember mercy. I know there's coming wrath, but remember mercy. And that is a far cry from Habakkuk's initial complaints calling for justice. Mercy is so necessary. We live in a merciless age these days. Especially like in the technological realm. <laughs> like We live in a merciless age where if you say something or post something or tweet something or whatever it is that isn't lockstep with the culture around you, oh man, you're going to get beat down. Beat down. Not a gentle nudge. It's going for the throat and hitting the guy while he's on the ground. That's the culture around us. Merciless. And the thing is, is we don't deserve mercy. Judah didn't deserve mercy, didn't earn mercy. Babylon didn't deserve mercy. And we don't deserve mercy. We couldn't earn it. But it's so necessary. Without it, we are lost. In the midst of judgment, punishment, wrath, God still shows mercy. And no, obviously, is that displayed more obviously than on the cross. It's the most heinous act of all of human history. And it brought wrath and punishment for sin, but also mercy for all sinners who would just look to the cross, to look to Jesus and be saved. Remember mercy in your wrath. How much better of a world would we live in if we in our own wrath remembered mercy? Well, the rest of the prayer and the song is going to be focused on God's awesomeness. Um, in particular, some stories about his, his greatness in the, in the law, in Exodus, um, but throughout the history of Israel. And so, uh, if you'd like another R word, uh, you can refer to this section as a recounting. This is recounting God's faithfulness throughout the ages. And it's, it's very similar to many other songs in Scripture. Um, this is one declaring the wonderful nature and power and majesty of God. Uh, and it gives us a little bit of, of an idea of where he's coming from. Kind of the, He begins to paint this picture um, for us uh, by referring to this, this place in the east called Timon, um, or the, where he says the Holy One from Mount Paran. And these refer to a, a city east of Israel, which was actually the home of one of Job's friends. Um, and... Uh, the mountain just opposite that city. And the language used in, in verse 3 and 4, it's one comparing God's splendor to that of a rising sun, a sun that rises in the east um, and brings new hope and beauty and light after a period of darkness. And it's very, very, very similar uh, to the song of Moses, the final song of Moses in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. And I'd encourage you at some point, if you've got the time, uh, read through Deuteronomy 33, and you'll see a lot of the parallels between these songs. Um, 
that we're reading today. I'm just going to read the first verse for you of Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. It says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousand of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Okay, now with that in your mind, let's read verses 3 and 4 of our passage here in Habakkuk 4 and try to make the connection um, because I believe Habakkuk was getting after the same thing here. It says in verse 3, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. We'll stop there. The imagery is of a new day, of a dawn, and its splendor. And here Habakkuk, um, the concept that even in all of that glory, it's as if God is still veiling his power. He's not showing us everything he's got up his sleeve. God's got more um, that's going to happen. But even in this moment, it's this beautiful imagery of a renewal, um, just as it was for the people of Israel coming out of Egypt what Moses was referring to in his song, um, that the people were coming out of Egypt, that God was coming from Sinai to give them a new dawn, a new um, time of light for the people, bringing them out of the darkness of slavery in Egypt. And now Habakkuk is referencing another dawn, a new dawn for the people of Israel as they would be led out of captivity from Babylon. So Habakkuk sees the darkness approaching and has been worried about it this whole time and angry with God over its impending doom, yet now there seems to be a shift in his perspective. He sees that darkness, but now he seems to accept the punishment, and he's going to start trusting in God. And now he even gets to see beyond the problem to the bright future and new season for God's people. It's a pretty cool insight. Because how often in our own lives, when we've come face to face with a problem, with an issue, with a difficulty, that that is all we can see. That's all we can think about. We can't see the future beyond it. All we see is the evils in our day, the giant enemy before us, or the impassable mountain range in front of us. And we see those things and we despair. We think we're done for, it's over. But God wants us to look beyond those things and show us the beauty beyond the problem. And one of the best ways for us to do that is to see how he's done that in the past. Certainly in scripture, but also in our own lives and experiences. We often become so forgetful in the face of our own problems, don't we? We forget how awesome and faithful our God has been. So Habakkuk is going to remind himself and the readers of God's power and faithfulness. And again, this is very, very similar to the theme in the songs of Moses. But let's keep reading, uh, beginning in verse 5. It says, Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
What he's reminding himself here of is of the pestilence and the plagues under God's command, and we see that play out in, in Egypt's story. And it's as if Habakkuk's thinking, okay, we've got a new dawn coming, just like there was one for our people that when we were brought out of, out of Egypt. We're going to have another exodus where we're going to be brought out of Babylon. And as God brought the plagues and the pestilence and all of the crazy stuff that you read about in the book of Exodus, can he not do that again to bring us out of Babylon? What might he be able to do? It says that he is the God who stood and measured the earth, meaning he measured out its foundation. He built this rock that we live on. How powerful is our God? He says he looks and shakes the nations. Have you ever had a teacher or, or perhaps a, a parent or family member that just has to look at you and, and you get quiet? That's not my daughter at all. But at times, at least uh, before recently, now he's two and finally realized that he's terrible too, but um, my son, for the longest time, you know, like a year, he, he, he would, if all you'd have to do is look at him, and he'd, he'd be like, oh no, I've done wrong. <laughs> like, like just, just a look, and that's all it, that's all it would take. Uh, the other night, he was, he was, it was bedtime, and it was like, it's time to go to sleep, and so everybody's asleep, and we put the kids to bed, and they're in the same room, their bed's on either side of the room, and I just hear my son running back and forth through the room, like running up to, to my daughter's bed and, and giggling and messing with her, you know, and she's, of course, loving it. And, and so I'm like, okay. So I walk in, and all I have to do is just stand in the doorway. And, and he, he goes up, and he's giggling. He's looking to mess around with his sister. And he turns around, and he, just, he looks at me, and I'm just standing looking at him. And it, it literally shook him. He's like... <laughs> And he runs back to his room, or back to his bed. And that, was, that was it. That's all it took, right? That's God to the nations. These powerful nations, God just looks at them like, what? They're like, oh, oh, sorry, yeah. This is our God. The language used of the eternal mountains, the everlasting hills. It's again, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 33. The Song of Moses mentions these. But it's actually, he was referencing a promise made, or the blessing of Jacob spoken to his son, specifically his son Joseph, that these seemingly impressive, everlasting, eternal mountains, these, these places where the, the fruit and provision is going to come from uh, to, to give to uh, the people of Israel these impressive things, these important things to the Jewish people, Habakkuk is saying God can scatter those things, send them into the ocean if he needs to. The only everlasting things are his ways, his promises. That's a big statement from a Hebrew who knew the scriptures. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to read through the next nine verses together. I'm just going to read all the way through them. And as we're going through, for the sake of time, I'm not going to stop and look at each section or verse, but I, I, I do want us to be thinking, um, if, if we can, be thinking of stories or, or passages or things that you've heard in the scriptures um, in the history of the people of Israel that might come to mind because this is full of, of imagery and things that um, we see throughout uh, the nation of Israel's history. Um, so let's read that together. 
I'm going to take a drink to make sure I can. All right, verse 7. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers, and mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And we'll stop there. And maybe you saw some things in there, but it's, I, I think for, for the people, the, the Jewish people in, in Judah, they probably would have recognized many more things uh, in here than, than we might. But we can see, if, if you study this passage, just the, the first one in verse 7, he remembers how Kishon was defeated by God, who utilized the first judge after Joshua. Um, it was Caleb's little brother, Othniel, in Judges chapter 3. And then he recalls Midian and the salvation of God through the, God, um, through the judge Gideon um, in Judges chapter 8. There are numerous similarities between the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 33 and in this section, referencing God rescuing the people of Israel through the waters, through the parting of the Red Sea, um, or through the, the crossing of the River Jordan. There are many similarities or quotes from the song of Deborah and Barak from their victory over the Canaanites as judges. The sun and the moon stood in its place is almost certainly a reference to Joshua chapter 10 when God stopped the sun in the sky and gave the people of Israel an extended day to finish off the enemy um, where he even helps out and throws uh, hailstones down um, to obliterate the Amorites. And a bunch more in there. Ties to 2 Samuel and the Psalms. It's rich with memories and references. Um, that so many other times in their history, the Lord was faithful to save his people from calamity, even when they had brought it upon themselves over and over and over again. By their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. And now, in the face of this new danger of Babylon, Habakkuk is remembering all the other times that God was faithful in their nation's history. And this is one of the biggest encouragements and the, one of the, the applications I could think of for this study, and it was simply this, that, that God is not asking for a blind faith. He has been completely and totally faithful to his people in every circumstance. He asks us to trust him. 
And it's as if he's saying, I will continue to be who I have always been in the lives of my people and in the life of you as an individual. Because we have the testimony of his word that he's always faithful. But we also have our own experiential testimonies of his faithfulness in our own circumstances, even hard circumstances. He never promised things wouldn't get hard. In fact, he's promised things would get downright awful at times. We looked at that at the the study of the problem of evil and suffering, but he remains the same. He is faithful to his children, to his bride. Over and over and over again, he proves this. Yet it's always in the middle of the difficult trials that we forget it. We We can't see it. We only see the problem, the fire, the evil in front of us. But my encouragement to you and to myself is when we face these circumstances, these hard things especially, we must review the history of God's faithfulness in our own lives as well as in in the history of the world. That we've been in worse trials than this. Or perhaps God's people have been in worse trials than the one I find myself in. Remember how God did this, how he did that. How he called us out of this and proved himself faithful even through the hurt and the loss and the pain and the difficulty. Do you remember when he did that? And it's when we start reviewing what God has done and how he's proven himself over and over and over again that the size of our problems starts to shrink a bit in our minds. And it enables us to sing that song that we actually led with this morning. That all my life you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. We would do well to recount God's story, his story, history. It's one of the only things that helps in the face of overwhelming terror and impending doom. Is to remember the one who calls you son, who calls you daughter. It doesn't mean the problem's going away or that you won't have to go through it and heal, but going through it with our eyes focused on God who is faithful is the only sane way to go about it. The final point of application from this passage comes in the last verse for today, and let's read that together. Um, It leads us into the final portion of this wonderful little book, Um, but I want to read with you uh, just this verse, verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon, or to come upon people who invade us. And I don't think this is simply poetic speech here. I bet Habakkuk's body was trembling and quivering the feeling of sickness, of rot in your bones, where you feel like your legs are about to give way, that you just want to vomit and fall on the ground. Some of you have experienced such anxiety. And you know that this isn't just poetic speech. Habakkuk was afraid of what was coming. The declaration of the Lord was not a happy-sounding picnic in the park. This was terror about to be unleashed. 
But look at his response. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. It's as if Habakkuk sees for the first time a bigger picture at play. Sometimes it's hard for us to see the bigger picture. I'd say a lot of the time it's hard for us to see the bigger picture of God's kingdom in this world as it spans so much larger than our individual lives. God was going to utilize this thing to bring his people back to him in such a way that would lead them to the next stage of Israel's existence where his son could then be born and the Messiah would enter into the world. They had no sense of the seriousness of this, the necessity of this. And God does something that seems extreme to get them back on track, to be ready for his son to come and fix the real problem of the world, which was not Babylon at the time, just like it wasn't Egypt before, or Rome after, or America, or any other nation in the world's history. The problem is no nation. The problem to be overcome is not a kingdom of this world, but a bringing of people into the kingdom of God to deal with sin and separation from God. But of course, Habakkuk can only see a little piece of that puzzle. And so he and every believer is left with the choice. Will we allow these trials that we face to dominate us? Or will we choose to live by faith? As Habakkuk 2.4 puts it, Will I live quietly, faithfully before the Lord and wait to see how these things will play out? Well, you'll have to wait until next week to see the final response of Habakkuk. No, I'm just kidding. It'll literally take you a minute to read it. Um, but it, it's really good. He ends rejoicing in the Lord. But I do propose to you that the reason Habakkuk started out the way he did, questioning everything the Lord was doing or not doing, questioning what God said he was going to do, and ends up saying here that I feel sick to my stomach about it but I'm going to quietly wait for these things to come to pass and eventually even rejoice in the salvation of our God that I believe in faith will come to pass. I believe this was all partially brought on by remembering God's faithfulness, as we've already said, but also due to a perspective change that comes only from spending time with God, who never changes. Spending time talking to God. We can't kid ourselves as to what this book is. Yes, it's prophecy. Yes, it's poetry. And yes, here at the end especially, it's a song. But the whole thing is a fantastic example of prayer. Habakkuk starts by talking to God. And God answers. And Habakkuk talks some more. And then he listens to what God has to say, hearing the heart of God. I and, and so many other believers have experienced this again and again. You can start out your prayers angry and confused and frustrated and not understanding what's going on. But after walking with God and hashing things out with him, spending time in his presence, hearing from him from the scriptures, or maybe a prophetic word that he gives to you or gives to somebody else to give to you 
after spending time with him in prayer, you start to see things more clearly. It's not because the issues have become more clear. It's because he has become more clear to you. Your problems are still there. They haven't changed. Our hearts change. Those problems seem smaller when they're stacked next to the God of the universe who holds us in the palm of his hand and loves us with an everlasting love, a proven love. Our perspective changes when we observe the God who never changes. I think Habakkuk, like many of us, believed that if God would just answer all of his questions, then he would finally be at peace about what he was seeing in his day. But that's a mistaken belief. Peace isn't found with all of the answers to to life's questions. Oftentimes it just makes it worse as it did for him. It just raises bigger questions. He learned that peace isn't found having all of the answers, but rather peace is found in having a life of faith, a walk of faith, not a blind faith, but a faith, a trust in a God with a record of faithfulness in his word and in our personal lives. He has built a testimony of faithfulness in our lives. Peace will come when we trust in him. Not with all of our whys and how long, O Lord's, are are answered. Getting answers to those questions um, don't necessarily bring us peace. And at some point, we have to be honest with ourselves that we are finite beings, you and I. And we are dealing with an infinite God who is much bigger than us. And at the end, eventually, we hit the end of where our minds and our intellect will take us. And for some of you, maybe that's a little bit further than, than the rest of us. <laughs> some of you, maybe your intellect will take you real far, really far. I know some of you are in this room. You're, you're brilliant people. And, but even, even so, we can, we can take our intellectual capabilities as far out as we can, as far out as we can stretch it, and we'll plant our flag of understanding as far out as we can go. And at the end of it, you still look up and just see the vast stretch before us of all of the other things that we don't know. And we know that even beyond the vanishing point of the beauty and all of the the mysteries and things that we can see, we know that beyond that, God is still infinitely beyond all of that. That we just can't possibly begin to know at all. And I think there's a beauty in that. But if you want to have a relationship with God that is based on answers from God, then you're going to have a a frustrating relationship with him. No matter how much of the Bible you know or I know or how much of it we can read and understand, if we, we, we all have that vanishing point where sooner or later we hit something and it becomes an issue of faith. Will you trust me with this thing? Is he trustworthy? Yes, proven track record, infinitely greater than any human but will you trust him? I believe this happens and a shift happens in our hearts 
the more time we spend with him, particularly as Habakkuk was doing in prayer. Recently, someone sent me a letter reminding me of of one of my favorite verses. It's Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Habakkuk was doing this. He was anxious, but he was trying this now throughout the book, and especially here in chapter 3. He's bringing these things to God. And now the peace of God, not just a peace from God, certainly not peace that comes from knowing more things, but a peace of God. This is a peace far superior from knowing the answers. This is a peace that comes from knowing him, praying to him. And the Holy Spirit through Habakkuk and Paul speaks to us and says to have faith, to trust, to pray. Don't forget how faithful God has been in all of our lives. Pray to him. And that peace that surpasses knowledge, it surpasses all human understanding, will set itself up as a shield around your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And I need that message in my life today. I I need to be reminded of this promise to pray. And I pity people who cannot get peace in their lives because they're looking for it in the answers to all of their questions. Because I've been there. I've wanted to know every answer to every question that has ever been asked about the Bible or about God and, and life and everything else. And There's no peace in those answers. Just kept me wanting to know more. And it can can burn or fry you as it almost did me. People in their pursuit of knowledge give up on knowing God at all because they come face to face with unknowable, unanswerable things. And they end up refusing to trust him. The peace that they're looking for, that we're all looking for, is in the Word. Not just in the Bible, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And His Word will be the final word. And our peace will come from trusting in Him. So where do we start? Where do we start with this? Start by talking to Him. Take time out of your day to rekindle or begin anew that relationship with the everlasting God. No relationship happens without communication. So talk to him. Bring all your cares and your troubles before him because he cares for you and he will help you through them all. And I I think that not much in Christendom has been so overthought and so overcomplicated at times than prayer. I have this great book on prayer. It's about this thick, thick book. I think... uh, Uh, John Bunyan, I think he was the one that wrote it. Um, And I made it like halfway in. I was like, I can't can't do it. I can't do it. He uses so many big words. It's like, I can't understand. You're killing me here, John. You know, like, it's it's not that complicated. We can definitely overcomplicate it. Um, I've known people who said that they they would never pray anything that wasn't the Lord's Prayer. And my, my best friend growing up, uh, the first time 
uh, he, he had me over to his house for dinner. He, he didn't grow up in, in the same church that I did. It was a much more traditional church. Um, and uh, his family and, and I sat around the, the dinner table, and, and his dad was like, all right, now it's time. We're, we're going to pray over the meal. And, and so they all started holding hands. I was like, oh, this is, this is fun. This is new. I don't really do this at home. This is cool. So we're holding hands, and then they all launch in unison into this prayer that I had never heard before. And, and they're praying all together this, this prayer they pray every night over their meal. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, <laughs> like just totally, and they look at me like, you don't know that prayer? I'm like, nope. <laughs> like, different, different Christian culture, I guess, right? Like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know about this. Um, and yet it was so beautiful. I've never forgotten that, that moment. Um, where they, they prayed that prayer together. There's a beauty in those recited prayers. And if you're having trouble um, knowing what to say or how to say it, uh, then maybe you read some, through some of the prayers of Scripture. Habakkuk is a prayer. You can read through some of these prayers in Scripture um, to help you uh, start your conversation with the Lord or pick up an old prayer book or something. But, but please don't overcomplicate it. Um, the Scriptures do provide us with a base work a model for how to pray in the Lord's Prayer and also the, the other recorded prayers in Scripture. But please don't overcomplicate it or overthink it. Just start by talking to God. Just start talking to Him. God will even help us out in this. Uh, Romans 8.26 tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us to pray and know how to pray. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's Romans 8, 26. God will even help us in these prayers. So just start praying. And the most um, awesome example of this in, in my recent life uh, was uh, several, maybe a couple weeks ago, um, with my, my daughter. And it, it just, I was reminded of this story thinking about prayer in the midst of anxiety. Um, and my daughter, she's five, and uh, she's seen modeled in her family and in her church uh, prayer and, and somebody, you know, just, just seeking God for, for something. And so my wife uh, and I, the other night, we woke up, it was in the middle of the night, it must have been like 2 a.m. or something, uh, and we woke up very startled because we were hearing talking in our, in our house, somewhere from our house, and it's like echoing around, we're like, Who's talking? What is this noise? And like we're both like listening, like what? Hey, honey, maybe you should go check that out. You know, we'll see what that, we'll see what's doing over there. You know, but no, we're we're like listening. I think I like get out. I like get a little closer. I'm like, I think it's coming from the kids' room. And 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 so we we sit and we we listen for a bit, and we can hear that it's it's our daughter, it's Kyrie, and she's praying her little heart out, and. She's sitting in her bed, and, and she's praying that God would, would heal her body and, and would help her to sleep because she had a cold and the runny nose and all that. And she's, she's praying that God would heal her body and help her to sleep and to keep her brother from getting sick with her sickness and, and all these little prayers that she'd heard prayed over her. She just started talking to him. And she has no problem talking, okay? No problem talking. She will talk all day. She just applied it to let me talk to God. And it was beautiful. It melted my heart. 
And I believe that when we come before God and we just start talking to him, it's a very similar reaction to the Father's heart. He just wants to hear from us. So just start talking to him. Maybe use prayers that are modeled to you by others as a starting point. Eventually it'll become natural to the to where you're speaking to God freely as if picking up from a conversation that was just momentarily interrupted. Um, but with someone with a, a comfort level so close as if you're speaking to a close family member or friend. But also with the respect and awe of speaking to our greatest hero and authority. But it all starts from just talking to him. And maybe it's been a while for some of you. Maybe it's, it's only been a minute. You're like, God, please, when is this guy going to end? I don't know. Maybe that was, that was your recent prayer. Or maybe it's been a long time. Maybe it's been a while since you've come to him. Maybe you haven't been on talking terms because of something that's happened to you or someone you know and love or, or, or something someone has done or said. The best way for your perspective to change about all of those things is to come to him in prayer, to start talking to him again. Prayer shifts our perspective away from us and our troubles and onto God and his glory. And that is also what communion does. It's what we're doing at the end of our services. And maybe you got one of the little, the little chalices of the, the, the bread and the juice um, but what those are about, it's, it's to remind us. It's a great example of reminding us of God's faithfulness and what he accomplished for us on the cross, that he gave his body and his blood to save us, to show mercy when we didn't deserve mercy. And so in this time of worship, um, we're going to sing praises to God as Habakkuk was doing here in chapter 3. Or... You could sing along with us or be quiet before the Lord in this time and pray. And for all of us, let's, let's all pray giving thanks to him for what his son did for us. And when the song ends, um, we'll all take the communion together. Sound good? All right, well, let me practice what I preach. Let's pray and the worship team can come on up. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You're so faithful to us. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the mercy that you showed to us sinners and then call us your, your sons and daughters. Lord, in, in a, a week, a season of thanksgiving, we could never be thankful enough. All of eternity, we will be thanking you. But Lord, just know that, that we love you, that we want to, um, to spend more time with you, to have more conversations with you, to know you more, change our perspective away from the, the troubles of, of our lives and have us focus back um, onto you and your greatness in this time as we worship you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, prayer will shift your perspective. Are you talking to God? Uh, go have a chat with him today.
recount all the ways that he's been faithful to you in your life um, and the ways he's been faithful in the lives of those around you and recounts of the ways he's proven himself faithful to his people over the centuries for much bigger problems than we face today. There will be a dawning of a new day um, where we will see God's splendor rise like a new sunrise over the darkness of our days and just wash it all away with his glory. We'll look forward to that day. Let me read uh, that parallel song um, from the Song of Moses just to close us out. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. It says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with 10,000 of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. He loves us. Go spend some time talking to him. And uh, be thankful. Thanksgiving coming up. And uh, if, if you would like to receive prayer, um, one of us will be up, up at the front. We'd love to pray with you. All right. God bless you guys.